evening and welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, the new president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. As some of you may know, I'm arriving here from the World Affairs Councils of America, the umbrella organization in Washington, DC, where I was the chief operating officer. I have long admired WACDFW and all of its work and I'm humbled and honored to now serve the council as president. With last week being my first at work, well, I can say that it was memorable. Uh, and on that note, I hope everyone has fully recovered power and water. I am greatly looking forward to meeting all of you in person when it's safe to do so. Our program tonight is going to be an engaging journalistic deep dive, which I am very excited about, and will feature Ira Rosen, producer of 60 Minutes from 2002 to 2019, and moderated by Tony Peterson, professor and distinguished chair in journalism at SMU. They will be discussing Ira's new book, Ticking Clock, Behind the Scenes at 60 Minutes. We have a full schedule of programs and please remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. Please remember to purchase a copy of Ira's new book, Ticking Clock Behind the Scenes at 60 Minutes. Our audience will receive a 10% discount at Interabing's online store by using the code DFWWORLD. The council is grateful to all of its supporters. And tonight I would especially like to thank Cher and David Jacobs. David serves as vice chair of our council board. Thank you so much, Cher and David. And additionally, I would like to recognize the Meadows School of the Arts at SMU for their promotional support of this program this evening. And we are lucky to have Tony Peterson chair the division of journalism in the Meadows School of the Arts sitting in our virtual armchair. Prior to joining SMU, Tony was the senior vice president and executive editor of the Houston Chronicle. Tony, the mic is yours. Liz, thank you very much. And congratulations on your new position, uh, World Affairs Council, Dallas-Fort Worth, and wishing you the best of luck in that role. And as Liz mentioned, our guest is Ira Rosen, author of Ticking Clock, Behind the Scenes at 60 Minutes. Ira was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University and also had a stint as senior producer for Primetime Live at ABC, working with Diane Sawyer. Ira has won 24 National Emmys, four DuPont Awards, two RFK Awards, and two Peabody's, and it is a laundry list of every top award in broadcast journalism. Ira, congratulations on publishing the book, and thank you for being here with us this evening. Great to have you. Thank you. I have uh, a, a, just a kind of a, a journalism professor question, first of all, uh, and that I, we always tell students that the getting fired from a job is not the worst thing that can happen to a student uh, in first or second job. And I'm just amazed at how many times you were fired and the circumstances <laughs> that happened. How many times were you fired when you just started out? Thank you for asking that question, because it's actually something I'm kind of proud of, because um, it doesn't speak to my failures. It speaks to my perseverance. And, you know, people get fired, uh, not necessarily because they don't know how to write or they don't know how to report. Sometimes it's because, you know, the, there's a shrinkage in a newspaper 
uh, or, and, and you certainly know about that, but uh, I was fired three times before I uh, became Mike Wallace's producer at 60 Minutes at the age of 26. And I'm just curious, did you deserve to be fired or was Absolutely, it absolutely, hands down. Um, I, I, uh, the quick story is I, I uh, got a story published in the New York Times at the age of 22 on the ethics of sneaking into better seats at a baseball game, whether that's considered stealing or not. And I wrote this for the sports op-ed piece, which they had back then. And I timed my arrival in uh, Sacramento uh, for the story to come out. And C.K. McClatchy, who you probably know, um, was uh, the editor then. And he looked at the story and I take my backpack off in his office and I was a little unshaven. And he said, the cool thing is, I, you know, when you're a publisher, you could hire you could hire someone even when you don't have a job opening. So he immediately gave me a job and he sent me to Fresno, California to cover high school sports. And I was terrible at it. I was just not good. I wasn't ready. And, uh, you know, I lasted about a month and then I became a copy boy in Long Beach and I wasn't a very good copy boy. And so anyway, I bounced around a little bit and, and uh, you know, uh, ended up doing a story, uh, I worked at WOR-TV in New York City, uh, where I did a story about how easy it was to obtain military secrets uh, through the mail. And uh, Don Hewitt had seen it, and uh, you know, he, he called my parents home. <laughs> and he called your parents home and your mom answered, and what did she say? And my mom, uh, may, may she rest in peace, she picks up the phone and says, uh, Oh, Don Hewitt, you have a lovely wife. Great. And he says, listen, I'd like to offer your son a job to be a producer on 60 Minutes. And she answered, he's got a job already. Why does he need another one? Thank you for calling. And she hung up on him. And I said, who was that? And it was Don Hewitt. And, and I said, mom, why did you just hang up on him? You have a job. Well, you don't need another one. And I called Don back immediately. And he said, hey, kid, I don't know about you, but I like your mother. So if you don't want the job, tell her it's hers. And uh, I certainly wanted the job. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, good for your mom. Uh, she was taking care of you. One of the things you also wrote about is when you were in college, you made money by giving tennis lessons. And you wrote that learning to hustle tennis lessons was actually great training for being an investigative reporter. Now, what's the connection? The, oh, it's it's. Um, it's convincing people that they need to fix their backhand or forehand and serve is the, the art of persuasion in that is very similar to the art of persuasion and convincing somebody to go on camera or to reveal certain information that they may be reticent to do. Um, so you, when, when you're a tennis pro, uh, you're trying things out. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, um, you're trying things out. You're trying different, uh, parts of persuasion. You're trying to sell. It's, it's salesmanship. Uh, and that's not unlike what we do as reporters. We're trying to convince people to give us information, to tell their story, to go on camera. Um, and, and it was a great training ground. But actually, the real training I got up there, there was a group of hotels in uh, New York called the Catskill Hotels. And there was Concord and Kutcher's. And I used to work the lights at night. And I'd watch the comedians, Jan Murray, Red Buttons, Henny Youngman. And I learned the art of storytelling from them. And for example, Henny Youngman, Henny Youngman, take my wife, please. Famous joke. 
or I'm going to take my wife to a place she's never been before, the kitchen. So it has a beginning, middle, and end. It has a, a story behind it, and it has a punchline. All the things a good story needs to do, but, but it's done in a few words. And the comedians in the Catskills tell stories in their jokes. And I was watching them, and I began to pick up the rhythm of that. And I then began to incorporate it in my stories. Diane Sawyer once described stories that I did back then as investigative comedies, um, because it, it created a certain memory in a person's mind about what, what we're exposing. Yeah. Well, uh, the book has been, uh, of course, discussed uh, with a number of, uh, by a number of news organizations, and especially the tabloids. And of course, the tabloid stuff is, uh, is always juicy stuff. Uh, and you uh, you wrote about the feud, of course, between Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters. What was how bad was the feud, and did it ever affect the on-camera presentation of the news? It's it. What it is is um, it was ambition. Think of it as the Yankees against the Red Sox, and they were both competing. You know, Yankees Red Sox compete. Maybe I shouldn't use that analogy down here in Texas, but they were both competing against. They were both competing for the title. Uh, and in the case of Diane and Barbara, they were competing for the very, very best interviews. Um, and, and there wasn't a management over it. I remember I was pursuing, um, there, was a, there was a moment in time we thought we could get John Hinckley who, who shot uh, Reagan. And I, I, I was pretty close. And Barbara came in and stole it from us. And I was so angry and, and Diane and I and the executive producer went to Rune Arledge, who was president of ABC News at the time and sports, but news. And he said, well, she just outsmarted you. And I was so angry about that. No, she didn't outsmart. She stole it from us. Um, but there was this, uh, they were allowed to do that. And what they, what they did was, um, which I was troubled by just from a, you know, standpoint of, of being honest about it, they, they would steal each other's uh, interviews or stories. And then in the hallways, they'd act like everybody, everything was okay. And they loved each other. At 60 minutes, when Mike would steal a story from Morley or Morley would take something from Mike, they wouldn't talk for a year. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, there was, there was extraordinary competition, very heated competition on getting this stuff. Yeah. And uh, a lot, there's quite a bit in the book about Mike Wallace, of course, and Mike uh, is a legend in broadcast journalism, widely considered one of the best interviewers really in, in the history of journalism. And uh, I, I wonder, uh, you, of course, describe him as being very abrasive, uh, arrogant, uh, even abusive uh, toward you uh, in terms of the relationship that he had with you. How did you get past that over the years? Ambition is the easy word. Uh, I was 26. Like you, you mentioned earlier, I had been fired from a few jobs. I didn't want to be fired again. And um, I wanted to learn from the man, you know, what I describe him as the Picasso of interviewers. And there were times we'd be on the road and he would teach me the art of interviewing somebody uh, to build up the air of confidentiality to always ask the hard questions first so the person then could relax a little bit. Um, he wanted to create conversations in his interviews. Um, and he also revealed a lot through his facial expressions. It was the, oh my God, look, the, 
are you kidding me look? In fact, one time we had, um, you know, we were trying to book Marlon Brando and we had dinner with Marlon Brando and Brando began the dinner by saying, Mike, I've admired your acting ability for many years. And Mike said, I'm not an actor, I'm a journalist. No, Marlon said, you're the raised eyebrows, the look of astonishment. It's, it's genius, it's genius. And Mike changed the subject. But I was learning from him at the time. Um, and there was this the, these moments when he would just be, if things didn't go well, which happens on every story nearly, where he would just start yelling and screaming and trying to find the thing of the point of vulnerability uh, in, in me um, to try to goose me. Um, you know, and, and, it, and it created a, you know, uh, I, I wrote in my book that each one of the producers who were working with Mike suffered from some medical condition. There was one producer, in fact, who had ulcers that he nicknamed Myron, which is Mike's real name. Um, and for me, uh, I had a bad back throughout the time that I was working with him. I used to sleep on hotel room floors. Even in my honeymoon, I had to sleep on the floor because my back was so bad. Um, one producer lost all his hair in his late 20s. Um, so it affected a lot of people in different ways. Um, but we were working, you had, here's the thing, which, which I tell my friends is that being a 60 minute producer is like being Superman. You're given magic powers. You get people out of jail. You right the wrongs of society. You change laws because of the reach, the power, the money we had to pursue it, the time we had to do these stories and the impact people paid attention to it. And um, it, it was like a little bit like being Superman and Superman doesn't want to give up its superpowers so quickly. So, you know, part of the, what I describe as the price of admission, the price of admission to be a producer for Mike Wallace is you take that verbal harassment. And of course, Mike Wallace dealt with depression over yes. the years. Uh, and I, I would assume that particularly in the 80s, sometimes the medication was working and sometimes not so good. I mean, were you as a, did you as a producer have to work around those moods and try to understand what was going on with this medication? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, we were, we were going to Lewisburg Federal Prison one time and we were, interview, we were gonna go interview Herbie Sperling and um, he, he starts smacking the windshield and, uh, you know, to the point where his hand got a little bloodied. And we, we, you know, and I'm looking and I'm... Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm frankly, to be blunt, I was being selfish. This interview took a long time to set up. Why is Mike suddenly acting this way? You know, I didn't really have a sense, a sense of what was going on. We go to the prison, we do an interview. It's classic Mike Wallace. It's a great interview. And then on the way back, he asked me to pull over and, th and he throws up on the side of the road. And uh, then he tells me, don't tell anybody in the office. And um, 
the next story we did was on a uh, person named Arkady Shevchenko, who is a uh, Soviet diplomat who turned out to be working for the CIA. And we did the story. Mike calls me up the night the story airs. And he said, hey, kid, you know, by the way, they never call you by your name. It's always kid or young America. So they said, he said, kid, I saw the story. Uh, I was there. I asked the questions, but I have no memory of having done it. And the next day he checked himself into the hospital. Um, and Mike's legacy in many ways was uh, when he when he was suffering from depression, the doctors at the time told him, don't talk about it. It's going to hurt your career. Um, but when he checked himself in the hospital, he began to realize that, you know what, I really need to go public with this. And he did. And in many ways, you know, as a journalist, you always want to affect change. Um, and probably the biggest change that Mike affected was going public with his depression. Because a lot of people then had the courage to come forward and seek out treatment. If Mike Wallace can do it, I can do it. And they sought medical help and people got better. And I remember sitting in his office, um, you know, in, you know in, in, after he revealed this, and he would show me the pile of letters he was getting from around the country. And he was so, he was proud of, prouder of that than almost any story he did. And that was when, 2004, 2005? um yes yeah exactly yeah, a, yeah about the time and, and he he really did receive a great deal of adulation uh for having overcome uh, so many things so uh it worked to his benefit in the long run yeah but i don't think he was thinking of it as you know i'm doing this to to enhance my reputation or something i think he genuinely um felt that it changed his life and he wanted to do something that might help others uh, and, and, you know, it was really um, the, the best of Mike coming out then. I, I was taken by the story that you uh, wrote when you had to really push Mike Wallace to do the interview with former President Jimmy Carter and his wife, Rosalind. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that story and how it came about. Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, it was a, a Texas person who helped set it out, Bob Strauss. Um, and I got to know Bob a little bit in Washington, um, and uh, we, we would have lunches every so often. And uh, he, he helped arrange my, the first interview with Jimmy Carter after he left the White House. And, and uh, Mike Wallace was very close with the Reagans. And uh, he, was, he was very worried about the interview, how this would affect his relationship uh, with the Reagans and what they would think of him. And um, we're doing the interview, and and I told I told President Carter, um, you know, about the bias, so he was aware of it. And I said, you know, don't don't hesitate, go for it, have a conversation with him. And we got to a question um, on human rights on the Ronald Reagan administration, and um, I I said, Mike, will you ask the president about human rights? Uh, and he said, I'm not going to ask that question. And I said, Mr. President, can you tell Mike to ask you about human rights under Ronald Reagan? And he said, Ira, don't involve me in your silly little questions. And I said, Mike, you're embarrassing me now. Will you ask the president about human rights under Ronald Reagan? And there's something called a slate. So you do like this, you know, uh, back then. So we, we, Mike slated with his hands. And this is how he asked the question. Human rights under Ronald Reagan. It wasn't even a question. And the, and President Carter said the first thing this president did was send Gene Kirkpatrick down to snuggle up to Pinochet 
And that sent a message that human rights is no longer operative in the Ronald Reagan administration. And um, it would later become front page New York Times the next day after it ran. And uh, Mike looked down and he said, pretty good. And then President Carter looked at me and he said, how did I do, Ira? And I did like this. And, it, and that's how we got the answer that resulted in headlines pretty much all around the world. I was uh, curious in, in terms of uh, the time that you took off to go to Harvard for the Neiman Fellowship, because you said Mike absolutely resented your taking time off. And what were, what were the exchanges that occurred over that uh, fellowship at Harvard? Oh, he, he regarded it as a vacation. Um, you know, he didn't understand that, you know, I was 32 at the time and or 32, 33. And, and this is something where I'm, I'm learning, I'm expanding the breadth of it. It's an extraordinary program, um, uh, the Neiman Fellowship Program. And it really does help shape a journalist's career, uh, you know, the second phase of a journalist's career. And I was lucky enough to, uh, to have it under Howard Simons, who uh, was the former managing editor of the Washington Post during Watergate. And, and Howard, Howard helped shape me. And one of the things Howard told me, which I didn't realize, he was like a therapist in some ways. He said, I was picking up some of the bad habits of Mike Wallace. I was getting people angry for the sake of getting people angry by being sarcastic or something. And he took a little bit of the edge off me. And he said, you know, it's okay to be a character, but be a likable character. Don't be a character who no one likes. And it was great guidance. You know, I mean, uh, you know, Howard unfortunately died a few years after uh, we had the fellowship, but um, Mike resented that. And when I got back to um, CBS, uh, he took it out on me. Um, we, uh, we did um, one story uh, with um, Edward Teller, who was the inventor of the H-bomb. And um, it was going to be an awful story. Teller uh, kept, Teller had just written a book and he wanted me to have every question that we asked come from the book. So imagine like I wrote Ticking Clock. So I would say, as I said on page 44 of Ticking Clock, and then you go, well, that's what Teller was doing. And I said, to, I came back to New York, I said, Mike, we can't do this. This is, this is gonna kill us. He said, no, no, it's okay. And um, so, so we did the interview um, and it wasn't all that, it wasn't that great, but I, and, and so it, but there were some moments that were incredible. Uh, like for example, that Edward Teller tried to rip his shirt open to take the microphone off because he resented the fact that Mike asked the question that wasn't, uh, that didn't start in the book. And uh, Mike didn't want to put it in the piece. And so Don Hewitt screens the story and he says, hey, nice try kid. Uh, you know, it wasn't going to make air. So I changed. I said, can I show you another cut the next day? And um, so I did. And Don said, I've never seen this happen before. You took a 2.2, made a 9.9. Peace would end up later winning the Emmy for best interview of the year. But Mike resented it. Mike resented it. And uh, because at that point in time, he was in the self-destructive mode. And he was trying to and I knew how this was going to end. It's going to end with him setting me up for failure and firing me, you know, just like I was fired in Fresno, California. <laughs> so you have a chapter in the book on gangsters, and you note at the outset of that chapter that the more you spent time around politicians, the less you liked them, uh, because you got to know who they were and what they were doing. 
uh, and yet you like gangsters because somehow you consider gangsters authentic. Uh, now, how are gangsters authentic? Because once when they decide to tell their story, um, they are honest and revealing. Um, first, you got to get them get them to that point. So I did a story uh, in the in the 80s on Joe Bonanno. Joe Bonanno ran organized crime, the Bonanno crime family. He was the boss of bosses. And um, I asked him, um, and we had just completed the interview, and he had he had broken his code of omerta and talked about the commission, which is the ruling body of uh, the mafia. And he um, he and I were having a cognac in the backyard. And uh, I said, hey, Joe, you know, as a kid growing up in New York, I always was fascinated by Meyer Lansky. What is it about Lansky? And uh, was he that good of an accountant? And he said, accountant? He had the picture. I said, what picture? He had the picture, this is what Bonanno said, of uh, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover and his deputy, Clyde Tulson, having sex together. And they used that as a blackmail chip to, um, to keep the FBI from investigating the mafia. And he said, that was Lansky's value, the picture. And I write about that in my book. And um, so he, that was, how honest is that? That's something you don't get. And then he talked about the Kennedy assassination. Um, and he said, you know, he, he said very matter of factly that uh, when, it, when it happened, he called down to Miami and spoke to Santos Traficante, who was the head of the mafia in Miami, and said, what's going on? And, and Traficante allegedly told him, listen, Miami will take the heat for this. Miami and New Orleans, which was run by Carlos Marcello at the time, will take the heat for it. New York is okay. In other words, the five families in New York don't, don't, don't have to worry. And so they found, you know, he, he, he told me these stories and they were incredibly honest. There was no cameras, there's no financial incentive to tell them. But, you know, this, these are fascinating things. And of course, later on, I got to meet John Gotti Jr. Well, the John Gotti uh, Jr. sequence in the book is, uh, is fascinating. And really, uh, I think your relationship with him clearly <laughs> uh, changed into a friendship because he spoke at your retirement from CBS. Yeah, and, and um, I wanted, uh, it was a party that was thrown by Bill Whitaker and Leslie Stahl at the Harvard Club, of course. And, um, and I, the only non-CBS person who I invited was John. And I wanted John there because it took me four years to convince him to go on camera. And, and it was uh, dinners and, uh, you know, uh, breakfasts and lunches and, and taking his phone calls and sometimes calling him up for jokes. And, um, and finally, we, I convinced him to go on camera and it became probably one of the most memorable 60 minutes uh, stories on gangsters ever. It would started off as two parts and ended up becoming an hour. And, and I wanted him because you know, I kind of regarded him as a kind of a gangster poet. And he told the story at my retirement party, basically how I got him to go on camera. And I go down to the federal courthouse in New York where he was on trial. And uh, this is Gotti telling the story. And he said, Ira would start winking at me. And I turned to my attorney, Charlie Carnese, and I said, who's that guy winking? And he said, oh, that's that 60 Minutes producer. He uh, wants to do an interview with you. And John said, first, I haven't been in jail that long. Someone's going to make a pass at me. 
And I'm not going to do an interview with somebody who's going to wink at me. I ain't doing an interview with 60 minutes. And so Iris started to court me like a bride. And so to, after a while, I'd, go, I'd always go down to the courthouse. I'd wave to him. And John would eventually bring me over. We'd start talking. And then he starts kissing me on the cheeks. And, and uh, when, when he started kissing me on the cheeks, his supporters, they started kissing me on the cheeks to say hello. It was like, it was like oh, oh, he's okay now. And so I started having to bring a napkin to the courtroom to sort of wipe my cheeks off. I mean, they were so wet. And we just, it's, it's sort of what the job was, which is to try to convince these people um, to tell their stories on camera. I think in, in the case of John, it really benefited him uh, because he ended up getting a movie deal out of it, which uh, it was a terrible movie, but um, he got a movie deal out of it. And, and people, I had the uh, um, former police commissioner of New York City come up to me after the story aired and said, God, he's a real likable guy. It's a likable guy. You try to put him in jail four times. What do you mean likable guy? But you know, that's what TV sometimes does with these people. There's a question in the chat about this. And I was going to ask you because you had lunches, you had dinners in public places and you met with the gangsters and those affiliated with the gangsters. Uh, I know you saw The Godfather. Didn't you ever think that you might get caught up in some kind of a hit at one totally. of the restaurants? Yeah, I mean, I, looking back, my, my, my family is a very, very conservative family, and they think I'm nuts for some of the chances I took. When I, when I was um, in Detroit one time, I got a pizza and knocked on the capo's door of uh, the crime family in Detroit, and he opened the door. He didn't know what was going to happen, and I introduced myself, and I said, uh, listen, I have a pizza here. It's half pepperoni, half mushroom. I prefer the mushroom, but if you insist, I'll eat the pepperoni. And uh, and I'd love to just come in and chat with you and share a slice of pizza with you. And he said, get the hell out of here. And there's something about the urgency and the smell of a hot pizza that gets people to change their minds. So I opened the box and I let the smell kind of wafe into his room. And you know he couldn't resist, right? So he said, all right, one slice. So we go in and he didn't really say anything. We, I'm, I'm doing all the talking. And I'm eating the pizza as slowly as I can. And uh, at the end, he said, leave your card. And I left my card. And, uh, you know, sure enough, a week later, he calls me up. He says, you know, you got balls. And I said, well, thank you. And, he, and I said, I don't want to know anything about your family. I want to know about the other crime family in the, in the, uh, across the yard or whatever. And that he, be, he and I began conversations. And then once when I had information about that other crime family, I then could go to that crime family and said, hey, this is, what, this is what I'm hearing about you guys. And then so now it's now it's like, so that's how you do it as a reporter. You, yep. you, you, you use a little bit of information to get more information. Yep. We call it leveraging information and getting more information. Exactly. There, there was a, a really harrowing incident in Pakistan that you wrote about. And it was an interview late at night um, near the Afghan border. Uh, and as I recall, Steve Croft did not want to do the interview, so you did it yourself. And the CBS interpreter who was with you, who of course spoke the local language, started picking up on a really disturbing conversation. Can you talk about that story? Yeah, I, I think that night I took a stupid pill because what I decided to do was go to the um, uh, main mosque in Islamabad and do an interview with uh, this guy named Razi who was the uh, Al-Qaeda representative in Islamabad. 
By the way, his English was better than mine. And I, I think I got seduced by the fact that his English was so good. He had been in, uh, uh, educated in England. And um, uh, we, I do the interview, we have a camera crew. And after the interview, the camera crew leaves. And Razi says, let me show you around. And uh, you know, it was late at night and we go into the back of the uh, madrasa and um, he, he starts a very, very rapid fire conversation with the CBS interpreter uh, fixer uh, in Urdu. And, um, and, and there, there's almost like yelling. And I'm like, you know, la da 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 and I don't know what's going on. And then the uh, CBS person grabs me by the shirt and pulls me out of there and gets me into the car and he starts heaving. And I said, what just happened? And they say, and he said, well, they were discussing about making you another Daniel Pearl, uh, which was the journalist who was beheaded in uh, Pakistan. And uh, I told them that my brother is the police chief in Kohat, which is a nearby town. And that if they would take you, he will track every one of their members of their family down by morning and slaughter them. And that got them to pause long enough for me to be able to get out of there. But I was unaware of anything. I, I was, um, afterwards, I was more disappointed in myself that my personal radar uh, for danger was not working that night. Um, and um, it was a stupid thing to do. What do you, do you think the conversation was real or was it maybe posturing? Do you have any way of knowing? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, would they have done it? I found out later that I was being followed by the uh, Pakistan Intelligence Service, uh, by the ISI. In fact, in fact, in my uh, there was a minder who was with me for much of the time I was in Pakistan, and we went out to um, to dinner right before I went to the airport. And I said, "Let's be honest with uh, with, with each other. Um, did you listen to my phone calls?" He said, "Yes, of course." Did you follow me wherever I went? He said, absolutely. Did you go into my room and go through my notebooks? My God, why would you think we would do something like that? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to talk about the time that you spent at ABC. Uh, in 1989, you left CBS uh, and you went to work uh, for ABC as a senior producer and they started Primetime Live uh, with Diane Sawyer investigating uh, it was investigative journalism and, and uh, a lot of it quite good. Uh, and there was an extensive use of hidden cameras. And the use of hidden cameras was criticized by a lot of uh, journalism ethics people. Uh, and how did, you, how did you sense that as an, a real investigative tool that was worth using despite the criticism? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking that question. It, it was a it was a big point of discussion in journalism schools about um, whether it's okay to misrepresent yourself in order to get a story, and whether it's an invasion uh, by bringing cameras into these places. And we went through a kind of a very vigorous process before allowing the cameras to be sent out. Uh, for example, we would bring them into mental retardation centers, meatpacking plants, VA hospitals, daycare centers to expose the abuses that were going on. And um, uh, we, 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 the, the cameras never lie, if you will. Uh, they showed things that uh, the mere recounting of what you would hear would not be able to do. 
Uh, I think the quick and easy answer to what you just asked is the greater good. Is there a greater good that would come from what you conceivably will reveal? And you're not doing it just for titillating factors. You're not doing it just to make your story you know, more photogenic, but you're really doing it as part of a journalistic enterprise. Um, by the way, and I've lectured about this you know, in, in, in dozens of, of schools around the country, um, you know, the, the beginnings of, of, of muckraking, if you will, you know, go, and you certainly know this, is, you know, go to the days of Upton Sinclair, Nellie Bly, uh, and some of the great early muckrakers. I, I, I used to tell this, I told the story of Columbia Journalism School a few times, Pierre Salinger um, posed as a, uh, a vagrant and got arrested in order to expose the uh, problems inside the San Francisco jail seas, uh, system. A year later, he's President uh, John F. Kennedy's press secretary. Um, so, you know, it, it, it had a kind of a nobility to it because of the greater good that you were doing at the time. And um, uh, then we did a story called Food Lion and everything would change. And Food Lion was a uh, hidden camera investigation of the Food Lion grocery store chain and their food handling practices. And we sent two people in to work at various stores to reveal what we what was going on. And uh, we ended up um, uh, being contacted by Food Lion saying that if you run the hidden camera video, if you want to interview the workers there and you want to do the stories, fine. But if you reveal the video, we're going to sue you. And uh, it basically put everybody on notice in uh, what was going to happen uh, because of the power of the hidden camera video. And they did end up suing us. But interestingly enough, which people don't realize, they never sued us for libel. They sued us for a clause in a violating a North Carolina statute, which is which makes it illegal to send somebody to spy on a, a rival's uh, product. In other words, like one dress manufacturer sending another person in to spy, spy to get the, the next line of clothing. Um, so the jury in the first trial said had they seen the piece, they wouldn't have given Food Lion a nickel. But the jury never got to see the story and was just basically told by the judge, assume it to be true. None of that, of course, was revealed at the time to the public. And we lost the first round. And I write about this in my book, you know, and, and with, you know, and, and we lost the, we lost the first round. And we ended up winning it in the second time around. But for Food Lion purposes, they accomplished what they were after. They, they declared victory, and, and it really was the beginning of the end for the use of hidden cameras uh, in the networks. Uh, insurance rates started going up. Uh, the price of doing these stories went up, um, and uh, people kind of turned away from it. Yeah, and, and of course, the, the, the lawsuit turned on the falsified applications of two ABC producers who got jobs at the food line stores and took the uh, uh, took the video, uh, and the final judgment of the appeals court was one dollar for each of the two producers. And of course, I know David Weston at the time of uh, ABC came out and said it was a great victory for investigative journalism. But really, in a sense, it it sent a message, I think. Uh, and uh, as you said, it it probably it did really create an end to investigative journalism with hidden cameras. You're you're exactly right. It it chilled the scene because uh, you know a lot of these and, and you used to work you know in a newspaper you're you have insurance you have deductibles 
And so you start raising the deductible amount and the price of doing these becomes more expensive that the insurance company is willing to take on. And, uh, and, and it translates down to the lawyers who are re reviewing your piece. You're not gonna get as much many as approvals to do stories. Uh, we, we had sent, uh, uh, we had one, one of our stories we did, I was talking to the producer on this. We created our own medical clinic in Los Angeles, a Morgan Medical. Uh, to expose the buying and selling of patients in Los Angeles. And uh, there's a restrictive law in California. It's a two-party consent state unless there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. So we kept the door open a little bit so the secretary in the outer room could hear conversations. And the lawyers felt that was okay to do that story. Uh, and it was, a, it was a big, big story and revealed a lot. I don't think you can do that story today. I don't think any lawyer would let you do a story like that now. And um, uh, it got to be much more conservative. And it was interesting, the transition in Hidden Camera, uh, ABC transitioned into a show, What Would You Do?, which was kind of a candid camera look. Uh, but you know, in order to do it, they have to have waivers signed by the people who they end up shooting on Hidden Camera. It's a very different thing. In other words, situational ethics kind of uh, thing. That show is still on the air, though. Yeah. As we move into the final uh, 15 minutes or so of our interview, Ira, I'd like to ask you about the uh, relationship that you cultivated with Steve Bannon, generally considered the architect or one of the architects of the Trump uh, campaign in 2016. And you seem to understand early on that Bannon was somehow going to have a departure from Trump uh, and that you could take advantage of it and get the interview with Bannon. How did you know that was going to happen? Because he's he's uh, a lightning rod, and uh, he also what you you could tell you know a lot of it is instincts, and you know you can't have two people who both want attention, and the president President Trump will always get the attention. He's the boss, not Steve Bannon. And Steve had, you know, put himself on the cover of, you know, not that he put himself on, but he allowed himself to be portrayed on the cover of Time Magazine. Uh, he became a, a big source for Bob Woodward's first book on, uh, on the Trump White House. Uh, he became a big source for Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury. Um, and it was always about, you know, him, him being there in the middle of everything. And Trump said, you know, I was, I was, I had defeated all these uh, primary candidates before Bannon even got on the scene. And I had gotten to know Bannon, um, you know, uh, probably a year before. And he, um, he was presenting himself. We were supposed to have breakfast. And um, uh, he shows up wearing an army flak jacket, a beard, I'm not going to talk about what he smelled like, but he sits down and he said, I'm going to be running the Trump campaign. And there was so much wrong with this picture. You know, it was literally like somebody who looked like a vagrant in the streets coming in and saying he's going to run the presidential campaign for the Republican Party. I mean, it didn't make any sense. Um, but then, of course, he did. And I would visit him down in uh, Trump headquarters in New York at Trump Tower. And uh he, at that point, I was trying to be an in-bed to do a, a documentary for 60 Minutes about uh, the, the, uh, the last three months of the campaign. And he was very into it, but Jared Kushner shot it down. Um, but so after they got in the White House, uh, I started, 
you know, and again, you know, the, the courtship, I started going on weekends down to Washington on Saturdays and I'd go into the West wing and, and, uh, uh, at the time, uh, Priebus was the chief of staff, and he'd be having Saturday night date night with his wife. Uh, Jared Kushner would be observing the Sabbath. And so basically, we had the West Wing to ourselves, and the two, he doesn't drink alcohol, and we would be drinking Diet Cokes, and we'd just be talking. And, you know, he'd be telling me things, and then after a while, we went to his house, they called the embassy, and uh, it eventually resulted in him in him agreeing to go on 60 Minutes for his first interview after he was fired. And he openly pushed <clears throat> the idea that Trump was suffering from early dementia and thought that Trump could be removed uh, by the 25th Amendment. Did he make any headway with anyone with that argument? Not at all. No, I, when you say openly, I mean, he was sending me, uh, he was telling me about it. He was sending me texts. Um, I think he was trying to build up um, you know, it, it's, it's, um, I suppose this is the way coups used to happen in the old days. You know, you try to get one person, um, you know, then you get another person, uh, you know, uh, I'm not saying it's, it's parallel, but I said, you know, I was watching a movie the other night about the plot against Hitler and, uh, you know, how they gradually began to build. And I think, you know, in, in Steve's mind, he was testing that out, trying to see who, how many people he, he could get. Uh, in the in into it, um, but I found it astonishing that you know that that he actually conceived of that stuff. Around the time of the election, you had also established uh, a, a friendship of sorts with uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, now uh, widely associated with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, generally considered to have been a procurer of some of the the uh, young girls. Uh, you. But right before the election, you called her and asked her to have a drink. And the story that's in the book is fascinating. Can you relate that? Yeah, I, I, I one of one of my internships was um, with a guy named um, Jack Anderson, uh, who was a kind of a muckraking columnist in Washington, D.C. And his top aide was uh, Les Witten. And Les always used to tell me, you know, sometimes you have to bluff that you know more than you do and to sort of see what could come of it. So um, I had met, uh, and I'm not gonna give away the, the, the whole story and, and uh, in, in the book, which is pretty, you know, you're laughing and it is very funny, but um, it, it led to uh, a few months before the election, uh, I said to her, you know, I want the tapes. I just assumed that, you know, she knew what I was talking about. I knew what I was talking about. And I said, I want the tapes of uh, Trump uh, and Epstein and the women. And she put a finger in my face and she said, Ira, I'm the daughter of a press baron. Uh, I know the way you people think. If you do one side, you have to do the other. And I said, I'm prepared to do both sides. You get me the tapes of Trump, you get me the tapes of Clinton, uh, I'll do both sides. But it was kind of a tacit, she said, I don't know where he keeps them. Um, and uh, we didn't, you know, you know, I was saying you, you need to find out where he keeps it. You need to get it for me. I, honestly, I, I didn't think I would get the tapes because I didn't think that, oh, 60 Minutes is asking for the tape. Sure, I've been saving this as my great insurance policy. Of course, I'm going to give it to 60. There was no way Epstein was going to give up those tapes. This is, you know, this is like somebody giving up their insurance policy. Um, the, the thing I remember, though, which I, uh, which, I, you know, I, I, 
stayed with me was she was talking about Epstein and he said he wanted to live forever. And he always wanted, he was always, he was very into cryogenics and he wanted to sort of explore some of these possibilities. How do you live forever? How do you preserve the body after you're gone? So when he killed himself and I said, oh, you know, I, this doesn't sound right. Why is a guy who's killing himself? Why is a guy who wants to live forever killing himself? There's something that was a little off about that. Um, yeah, I, I won't give away the, the details that are in the book because people need to buy the book and read it themselves. But the I, tapes, the, the existence of the tapes has been rumored among reporters for several years. Do you believe the tapes exist? Absolutely. Uh, it's not just reporters. Some of uh, the victims uh, saw the recording equipment. Now, why are you having recording equipment, video equipment in a home unless you're somehow going to use it? Um, so now, now the victims didn't actually see, never sat there and watched tapes, but they saw the recording equipment. And I'm sure this is going to be coming out uh, when the trials happens in the spring or summer. Just a, a couple of other uh, points I'd like to make uh, with you, Ira. Uh, one, I don't want to let uh, the... Uh, the hour pass because you said some very nice things about uh, several uh, of your colleagues uh, and that you greatly admire them. And among them, Bill Whitaker, Leslie Stahl, and one of my all-time favorites, Ed Bradley. What was it that made them such special journalists? Bill is, um, Bill put in the work. He, he went to Tokyo, he went to uh, Los Angeles. Uh, he came up the hard way. His, he's got his father, his story of his family is amazing. His father was a waiter at the Cotton Club, which at the time in, was a uh, all white establishment in New York. His father was a waiter and where he could wait on the tables, but couldn't be a patron in the restaurant that he worked in. While his mother was in the kitchen playing cards with Ella Fitzgerald, waiting for him to get off shift. Um, and, and Whenever we did stories, we did it together. Uh, he was a, he was a, a brilliant uh, interviewer, and uh, we shared responsibility in the work. Leslie Stahl is a person who uh, puts in the time and the effort. But the thing I most admire about Leslie Stahl is the fact that she is a good, um, uh, you know, a family person. She, her husband is not well, and she makes sure she leaves work every day, no matter what she's doing. She leaves home every day at five o'clock to care for him and be with him. Uh, and she's, uh, you know, she wrote a book uh, about being a grandmother, in fact, and, and she, she, she dotes over those kids. Um, she knows where, she knows her values. She's got good values, uh, as they probably say in Texas. Um, and certainly Ed Bradley, Ed Bradley was just had this charisma that's hard to describe. He was, um, he would throw his suits out. Every, you see he's wearing a nice suit there. He would toss that suit every three years. Didn't matter. He just would toss it and buy a whole new wardrobe. He, uh, he bought a share in NetJets and he would fly around to shoots. He loved his jazz. And he would play, uh, he would go down to Jazz Fest and play trombone, uh, play uh, tambourine in various bands. There's a song called The 60 Minutes Man that he would, that he would play as part of. Everybody wanted to work with him uh, and everyone wanted to be with him. He was, uh, he was a real magical, magical figure. And when, when he died, uh, Bill Clinton uh, spoke, wow, I can't believe you have that up there. 
that was, I think, the cover from his uh, uh, funeral. Um, Bill Clinton spoke, and Whitman Marsalis played the uh, uh, the, the um, um, horn. And um, uh, you know, he everybody, you know, he was a remarkable guy. Um, I don't know how much time we have left, but we Ed did an incredible story on Muhammad Ali, and um, and and it's classic Don Hewitt. Don said, "Do a story about Muhammad Ali," and uh, and Ed said, "But he doesn't speak well. You know, he doesn't speak. You know, he he said if he would speak, it wouldn't be a story." And that's what Don said. And so Ed went down, uh, and they did a story, and uh, and. Uh, and Muhammad Ali's wife was saying, you know, sometimes the drugs he's taking, it affects him. He falls asleep and then he starts just making believe he's back in the ring. And so you see Ali doing like this and then he starts throwing punches at Ed and Ed's like this. And there was, it was all a big gag and stuff, but it was, it was fantastic, magical TV. Ira, the CBS network seemed especially affected by some of the fallout from the Me Too movement. Uh, Charlie Rose, Jeff Fager, Les Moonves, and of course, even after his death, uh, Don Hewitt. Did you have any sense of a lot of this stuff going on at the time, or was there any particular environment at CBS that seemed to bring this about? Well, when I, when I was working with Mike, I saw various things. Mike would um, snap women's bra straps. He'd touch them in inappropriate ways. Um, and there was a real kind of madman kind of culture that had existed. Um, that doesn't exist today. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, I think they put a stop to it. And, and it was a change that needed to be made. And as I wrote in my book, I'm not sure if I was a woman uh, whose bra strap was being snapped at the age of 26, whether I would have survived. There's uh, also that... Uh point late in the book, uh, and I assume this was 20, 2019, sometime in there, uh, you wrote about the CBS human uh, resources had told everybody to be nice to one another, and apparently that was taking place. But there was also that realization that you looked around Ooh. in the offices and you found that there was no energy in the place. Right. Describe, describe how that went. Yeah, I'm not saying that they had to act like madmen for there to be energy. I mean, that was not the point of what I was writing. But right. um, what I was trying to convey was that the, the personalities, you know, if you think about the personalities they had roaming the hallways and you worked in newspapers and you, re you remember, I'm sure, the times when these great personalities, you know, like a Mike Royko or somebody, roamed the hallways and how it energized the entire newsroom. In New York, we had our Jimmy Breslin, for example, or Pete Hamill. Um, and these personalities kind of brought life to a newsroom. Uh, Don Hewitt and Mike, and you'd hear them yelling and screaming, and Ed Bradley would emerge from his office telling people to pipe down, he's trying to take a nap, or, you know, Harry Reesner would be asking anybody want to go get a drink at the local bar. I mean, there was, there was this sort of, you know, weird charisma and energy, and, um, and, and, it, and it, yeah, I mean, that picture speaks you know, you know, look at that group of people. That group of people cannot be duplicated. The only person who's still alive is uh, Diane Sawyer. And um, they were magicians. Uh, and as a kid, I felt so privileged to be learning journalism from that group of people. Um, 
They were all ambitious. They were cutthroat. They all wanted to win. Um, think of the great sports team um, that dominated sports in football or in baseball. That's what those guys and, and Diane was like at that time. And, um, you know, I'm not diminishing anybody who currently works there, but there's, there's, there is a, a quietness. There's a quietness. Um, and I, I was just speaking for myself. I kind of missed a little bit of that excitement that, that had existed at one point. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm old enough to have uh, come up in the business in the 70s when the city editor kept a bottle of bourbon in the top drawer. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and there was something about the newsroom that did have a magical quality to it in terms of the journalism. Yeah, there was a producer uh, there named Joe Wershba who worked with Edward R. Morrow. He was ended up, he ended up being portrayed in the movie uh, I think it was Good Night, Good Luck or something on uh, uh, with George Clooney. He was portrayed by Robert Downey Jr. Ed used to have me in his office. I mean, Joe used to have me in his office Friday afternoon with some whiskey and telling me stories about covering the Korea War with Edward R. Morrow. These were teachable moments. I was absorbing it. It was a sponge for me. I was a fired kid from Fresno, you know, couldn't make it in covering high school sports in Fresno, California. And now I'm sitting with the amazing Joe Wershba hearing about Edward R. Murrow covering the Korea War. I mean, how lucky can somebody be? <laughs> well, Ira, you're right that uh, there are not many graceful exits from journalism, right. uh, but honestly, you've made one. And congratulations on the book, Ticking Clock, Behind the Scenes at 60 Minutes. And I wish you very well. And thank you for joining us. I believe Liz is on and will now come in and end our hour. Well, well done on that conversation. And honestly, if that conversation doesn't entice people to buy your book, Ira, I don't know what will. Thank you so much to both of you. And again, I would just like to remind our viewers to pick up a copy of the book, Ticking Clock behind the scenes at 60 Minutes at Interabang Bookstore. To catch up on our past programs, head over to our YouTube channel at DFW World. We've got a vast selection that you can catch up on. And if you're not a member of us yet, please join us. We'd love to see you more. And I look forward to meeting you in person as soon as we're able. Thank you and have a good evening. Oh,